Attention, all troops. He's alive. Alive. Welcome to the Rapnolis. I don't remember hearing about E.T. before it came out. It was just one of those movies where one weekend my mother said we're going to go see a film and then my young life was changed. We got home and just like every other kid in America, maybe every person in America, I had E.T. mania. The thing about E.T. unlike Star Wars or even G.I. Joe which I would become obsessed with, there wasn't action figures which was my main medium for showing my fandom for it. So my fandom showed up in different ways. I did have one little action figure. I think I had a lunchbox, maybe a stuffed E.T. And of course, eventually I would get the E.T. Atari game. But instead, I became really fascinated with aliens. I started watching movies about aliens whenever I'd see them. I got these books from the libraries about life on other planets and extraterrestrials. And then I became convinced that one day I would see one of these extraterrestrials. So I had a plan. I would spend as much time in the yard at night reading and hoping that an alien would show up. So I would sit on a chair in the patio, getting bitten by mosquitoes like crazy, with a book on my chest, just staring up at the sky, waiting. As time went on, I would develop more and more elaborate fantasies and started to pack a bag for my trip to wherever E.T. was going to take me. I think my family thought it was cute. I think my one sister thought it was crazy, but it got to the point where anytime I went out at night, I needed to take this backpack with me. I did this probably for about a year. No aliens ever picked me up. I think the reason I actually stopped doing this was I had seen some other show or movie that was dressed up like a documentary, maybe on PBS, and it had people talking about alien abductions. And for some reason, when adults are talking about being abducted by aliens, I found it much more terrifying. And I thought, well, what if the wrong alien picks me up? I think for about a month, I didn't want to go out of the house at night after that. Eventually, that would all fade away, and I would just be left with the memories of a great film. On today's show, we're going to talk about E.T., the extraterrestrial. We'll talk a little bit about the making of the movie. We'll talk about the cast. We'll go over the plot. Talk about how well the film did by critics and at the box office. We'll talk a little bit about where the actors in the movie are now. And of course, we'll talk about E.T. outside of the movies. We have a great info pack show for you. So without further ado, let's start the show.
E.T. was written by Melissa Matheson and directed and co-produced by the American director Steven Spielberg. It tells the story of a boy named Elliot who's befriended by a very friendly extraterrestrial who he calls E.T. The concept for the movie was based on an imaginary friend that Spielberg created in the 60s after his parents divorced. The original concept for that movie was much darker and had the family terrorized in their house by aliens. That concept would be reworked on the set of Raiders of the Lost Ark with Melissa Matheson, who at the time was Harrison Ford's wife. The movie would then take a much more benevolent direction. But the idea for a household of scared people was recycled into another Steven Spielberg movie, Poltergeist. In fact, Spielberg worked simultaneously on both E.T. and Poltergeist, and they were kind of made to complement each other. Spielberg said that E.T. would represent suburban dreams, while Poltergeist would represent the suburban nightmare. And it does. Both are wonderful films. While the movie would eventually wind up at Universal, originally it was being developed by Columbia. But the problem was Columbia had another movie in the works that also had an alien. So the studio didn't want to have two alien films coming out at the same time, so the head of the studio chose to make the other film. He decided to let E.T. go, and he made the movie Starman. I personally think Starman's a wonderful film, but kind of dropped the ball on that one. The film was shot from September 1981 to December of 1981 in California and cost $10.5 million to make. Unlike other movies, the film was actually shot in chronological order. So the stuff that we see in the beginning is what the actors are seeing, and the stuff at the end is the last stuff they shot. Spielberg did this because he wanted to facilitate a more emotional performance from the younger cast members. So those tears that you see at the end when E.T. is leaving... Those are real, because the movie's going to end, and all the fun times are about to end. In 1975, he directed Jaws. In 1978, he directed Close Encounters of the Third Kind. In 1981, he directed Raiders of the Lost Ark. And now, Steven Spielberg brings us E.T., the Extraterrestrial. We will witness the arrival, the search, the desertion, the fear, the discovery, the friendship. I'm keeping him. The secret, the love. The warning, the signal, the mystery, the danger. The intrusion, the wonderment, the enchantment, the hope, the connection has been made. Universal Pictures presents Steven Spielberg's E.T. The Extraterrestrial. So, about the cast of the movie you had Henry Thomas as Elliot. Elliot's a lonely 10 year old boy who wants to make friends and adopts the stranded alien and they form a very tight emotional bond. 
Robert McNaughton plays Michael, Elliot's football-playing older brother. Drew Barrymore plays Gertie, Elliot's younger sister. Dee Wallace Stone plays the mother of the family, Mary, who has recently been separated from her husband. She is completely oblivious to the presence of the alien in the house, often with comic consequences. Peter Coyote plays Keys, a government agent. Casey Martell, Sean Fry, and C. Thomas Howell play Greg, Stephen, and Tyler. They will eventually help Elliot and E.T. escape the authorities during the film's climax. Erica Aleniak plays the young girl Elliot kisses in class. And E.T., well, E.T. of course was a puppet, but E.T.'s voice was provided primarily by Pat Walsh, who was an elderly woman who lived in Northern California. Walsh was a -a two-pack-a-day smoker, and that gave her voice that odd quality that the sound effects person, Ben Burt, really thought worked for the role. She spent nine and a half hours recording her part and was paid $380 for her services. But E.T. also had other elements to his voice. Sixteen other people and various animals were also used in E.T.'s voice. Some of the people they used were Steven Spielberg, Deborah Winger, the sleeping wife of the sound man who had a cold, a burping USC film professor, as well as some animals like horses, sea otters, and raccoons. Crazy. Casting for these roles was difficult. Spielberg auditioned more than 300 children for these roles. Obviously, the most difficult character to cast was Elliot, and Thomas had shown up for the audition in an Indiana Jones costume, and during that formal test didn't do well, but they also did some improvised scenes, and Spielberg was impressed. Thomas was able to pull up tears to cry, which is really good for this role, and he did so by thinking about his dead dog. Some of his auditions were actually put online. Here's one of them. Is it true? Is there an alien in this house? Yes, sir. Well, as you know, I'm from the government. I'm part of the United States government, and I am empowered to take that alien with me. But you can't take him away. He's mine. Well, but the government is bigger than you are, Elliot. And I, I really, I have all the authority to take him, and i got to tell you, I'm going to take him can't take him. Well, I'm afraid I have to, son. You can't take him away. He's mine. But it's not my choice. The president asked me to come here and get him. I don't care what the president says. He's my best friend. And you can't take him away. Well, it's it's real possible, Elliot, that, that he'll come back and you can have him again. But we just want to talk to him and see where he came from and Try to find out about other planets. And he, he probably is the key to a lot of things that we have to know. But how do I know you're going to bring him back? Well, I'm afraid, son, I, I can't guarantee it. I think he's afraid of you. That may be true, but the government tells me what to do, and I just follow their orders. Well, he's mine, and he lives with me, and he likes me. And he wants to stay here. He likes it here. Well, we wouldn't hurt him or anything. All we want to do is talk to him. But I don't want you to take him away. You know, I've had to talk to your mom about it, and she knows that the government has the right to do it. And who told you all this? Well, we learned about it. We know that he's somewhere around here. I mean, I do have a search warrant. I could look around the house. Tell me to keep the eye. Right. Tell me to. Well, I'll tell you what. 
you let me talk to him for five minutes. I'll tell my boss that you can keep it. Would that be okay with you if I could just talk to him for five minutes? Would you feel better then? Would you be happy if you could keep me if all I had to do was talk to him for five minutes? That might make your whole day, huh? Might make your whole life, huh? And then he'd be your friend forever. And I wouldn't take him away. Okay, I'll leave. Okay, kid, you got the job. <laughs> McNaughton would audition eight times for the role of Michael before landing it, and Spielberg picked Barrymore because he thought that she had a really good imagination after she told him this story about this punk rock band that she was fronting. There was actually a big star in the movie that didn't make the film's final cut, and it was Harrison Ford playing Elliot's principal. The scene featured Elliot being reprimanded by the principal, and its tone is a little bit out of place and odd. I'm kind of glad it was cut. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the plot of the film. So if you have some want to see E.T. and have never done so, pause, go watch it. Otherwise, this is how E.T. goes. The film starts in a forest in California where there's a group of aliens collecting vegetation samples. The U.S. government appears and the aliens leave in their spaceship, leaving one of their own behind. The movie then shifts to a scene where a boy named Elliot plays servant to his older brother Michael and his friends. As he goes to fetch some pizza, Elliot discovers a stranded alien who promptly flees. Elliot then leaves a trail of Reese's Pieces in order to attract the alien into his bedroom. The next morning, Elliot feigns illness to avoid school so he can play with the alien. Now he's got a good friend. It's at that time that Michael and Elliot's younger sister, Gertie, meet the alien. They decide to keep the alien and try to ask it its origin. It answers by levitating balls to represent its solar system and further demonstrates more power by reviving a dead plant. Elliot can't get out of school forever, so he goes to school the next day and he begins to experience a psychic connection with E.T. He even becomes a little bit intoxicated after E.T. drinks some beer. And as E.T. watches John Wayne kiss Maureen O'Hara in The Quiet Man, Elliot, who is psychically linked to his friend, kisses a girl who he's had a crush on for a long time. Erica Aliniak's character, who I mentioned earlier. E.T. at this time has learned to speak English, and it enlists Elliot's help in building a phone so that it can contact its home. The primary item in the phone is a speak and spell toy. R-E-P-R-O-I-S-T Michael starts to notice that E.T.'s health is declining, Then, on Halloween, E.T. goes into the forest and makes a successful call home. The next morning, Elliot wakes up and finds that E.T. is gone. Michael then finds E.T. dying in the forest from breathing in our atmosphere and takes the alien to Elliot, who, because of the psychic connection, is now also dying. Then, government agents invade the house. The scientists set up a medical facility in the house. They quarantine Elliot and E.T., and then E.T. appears to die. And then everyone in the world cried. Elliot is left alone with the motionless alien. When he notices the dead flower, the plant that E.T. had brought to life in earlier scenes, suddenly come back to life. E.T. comes back to life and reveals that its people are returning. Elliot and Michael steal a van, and a chase ensues. It gets all crazy, there's some floating bikes, eventually they make it to the spaceship. There's this tearful scene between Elliot and E.T., and my childhood was changed forever. When the movie came out, almost, I think, everyone loved it. And most do today. At the time, critics like Roger Ebert wrote, This is not simply a good movie. It is one of those movies that brush away our cautions and win our hearts. 
Rolling Stone called Spielberg a space-age Jean Renoir, who, for the first time, has put his breathtaking technical skills at the service of his deepest feelings. Leonard Maltin said it was the best film of the year. In addition to those impressed critics, then-President Ronald Reagan and First Lady Nancy Reagan were moved by the film after a screening at the White House on June 27, 1982, and Princess Diana admitted that she was fighting tears back while watching the film. On September 17, 1982, the film was screened at the United Nations, and Spielberg received the UN Peace Medal. Crazy. The film would be nominated for nine Oscars at the 55th Academy Awards, including Best Picture. It didn't win Best Picture, but it did win four Academy Awards for Best Original Music Score, Sound, Sound Effects Editing, and Visual Effects. At the Golden Globes that year, the film won Best Picture in the Drama Category and Best Score. The Los Angeles Film Critics Association awarded the film Best Picture, Best Director, and gave a New Generation Award for Melissa Matheson. Even today, E.T. is very well received. The American Film Institute is all over this movie. They say it's the 24th greatest film of all time, the 44th most thrilling, the 6th most uplifting, the 14th greatest musical score, and the 3rd greatest science fiction film. AFI loves E.T. And so did America. The film premiered at the closing gala of the 1982 Cannes Film Festival and was released in the United States on June 11, 1982. It opened at number one with a gross of $11 million and stayed at the top of the box office for six weeks. Then it would continue to fluctuate for the rest of the year between first and second place, all the way up until January of 1983. By the end of its theatrical run, it had grossed $359.2 million in the U.S. and Canada. And just as a side note, the Hershey's company, who had allowed Reese's Pieces to appear in the film, even though the first choice was M&M's, saw their profits rise by 65% due to the film's prominent use of their candy. Jenny, get the door. It must be Cousin Willie. Okay. Hi. Want some? It's a little blue guy with big ears. He wants to share his Reese's Pieces. Reese's Pieces? Reese's Pieces. Mm, they're real candy with a crunchy candy shell. But, Ma, you gotta see this little blue guy. Fuck. Very funny, Jimmy. Reese's Pieces, peanut butter cream in a candy shell. The taste that's out of this world. The film was re-released pretty quickly in 1985 and grossed an additional $40 million domestically. Then in 1988, the film was released on VHS and Laserdisc. To combat piracy, the video cassettes were colored green and encoded with macrovision. In the United States and Canada alone, VHS sales totaled $75 million dollars. But the re-releases didn't stop there. In 2002, an extended version of the film, including some controversial CGI-altered scenes, was released. Spielberg had been bothered by certain shots of E.T. since making the film, mostly because he didn't have time to perfect the animatronics used in The Alien. So computer-generated imagery, CGI, provided by Industrial Light and Magic, was used to modify several shots. Most of those shots you might not even notice, they just improved the film. But it triggered a controversy when scenes that had agents carrying guns were removed and replaced instead with walkie-talkies. People really were bothered by this. Spielberg said he did it because he wanted to make the movie less scary. But now Spielberg has said that if he ever re-releases the movie, he would revert those scenes back to the way they had been. This new release grossed $35 million domestically 
bringing the film's worldwide total to $793 million since 1982. This re-released version was packaged and released as a two-disc DVD set on December 10, 2002. Thankfully, it was also packaged with a collector's edition of the original film, which made a lot of people happy that at least they could get the movie that they originally had. In this quiet neighborhood, on this tranquil street, a mystery is unfolding. And an adventure is beginning. Again. I'm keeping you. In March 2002, Steven Spielberg's masterpiece returns to theaters everywhere. What's he doing? E.T. Phone home. E.T. Phone home. Like you've never experienced it before. With enhanced visual effects. Never before seen footage. digitally remastered soundtrack <laughs> next spring take the journey what are you waiting for let's go and experience the excitement as et returns home to the big screen for a new generation to discover what the rest of us <sighs> will never forget Steven Spielberg presents the 20th anniversary of E.T. the Extraterrestrial. I'll be right here. So what are the people who are in these movies doing now? Well, Henry Thomas, who played Elliot, has done pretty well after E.T. Nothing reached that pinnacle again, but he had a memorable role in 1984's Cloak and Dagger, great movie, and played a young Norman Bates in 1990's Psycho for the beginning. Then he went to school, and in the mid-90s his career started to pick up again. He played Brad Pitt's younger brother in Legends of the Fall, and has worked consistently since then appearing in All the Pretty Horses and Gangs of New York. You probably all know that Drew Barrymore has not disappeared. Barrymore, despite a lot of admitted drug problems and alcohol addiction, has done pretty well for herself, working consistently throughout the 90s and even today. Now she's become a producer and a director, and we'll probably see her for many, many years to come. Robert McNaughton, who played Michael, had worked in television before the movie and would continue to work in TV afterwards, but eventually he just gave up on the whole Hollywood thing and stopped acting altogether. According to the web, McNaughton lives in Arizona and is married with a son. Dee Wallace, who played Mary, was a successful actress before E.T. and has worked fairly consistently afterwards. In the 70s, she worked in Starsky and Hutch, Policewoman, Chips, and she played Karen White in 1981's The Howling. Later, she would work in Cujo, Critters, The Frighteners, and in 2007's remake of Halloween. Most recently, she was in the Harrison Ford and Brendan Fraser film Extraordinary Measures. 
Peter Coyote, who played Keys, has worked consistently since E.T. Most recently, he was on the television show Brothers and Sisters and does a ton of voice acting work. C. Thomas Howell played Tyler, and even though his role was small, Howell would go on to do quite a lot of movies. He played Pony Boy in Francis Ford Coppola's The Outsiders, and then was in Red Dawn the following year. Most recently, he gave a standout performance in the police drama Southland. Sean Fry, who played Steve, another one of the friends of Michael, worked on and off for a couple of years, but then gave up acting completely and turned to non-profit work, which he continues to this day in Los Angeles. Casey Martell played Greg. I had seen Casey Martell in lots of things before E.T., and he continued to work in a steady stream of TV and movies afterwards. Then, in the early 90s, he quit acting and left Hollywood to work in the nonprofit industry. Fun fact, Casey Martell was one of the five young actors who played Eddie Monster. He filled the role in the 1981 TV movie, The Monster's Revenge. Erica Aleniak plays the young girl who Elliot kisses in class. Her role, very brief but significant, Aleniak would go on to work on television, eventually landing on Baywatch, where she stayed for three seasons. She would then land roles in such high-profile movies of the 90s as Under Siege and The Beverly Hillbillies, and in the years since then has appeared in dozens of films and television shows. Hello? Somebody out there? cartridge you have to buy separately to play on the Atari video computer system. Your parents hook it up to the TV. It's the video game that lets you help E.T. get home. Bye, E.T. This is the Atari video computer system. E.T. and other video game cartridges are each sold separately. So you know I can't talk about E.T. without talking about E.T. the Atari game. A lot of you have heard of it. Maybe a lot of you haven't even played it. It's not as bad as everybody says, but it's infamous for a reason. The game is divided into six sections, each representing a different setting from the film. To accomplish the objectives of the game, the player must guide E.T. to collect all the parts of a phone and eventually call home and be levitated home. Now, the process of making this game began in July of 82 and would be completed before the end of 1982, really quick. So we know the film came out in 1982, and Steve Ross, who was the CEO of Atari's parent company, Warner Communications, opened negotiations with Steven Spielberg and Universal to acquire a license to make the game. In July, Warner announced that they had the exclusive worldwide rights to market coin-operated and console games based on the movie. Although the details were unclear at that point, it was later reported that Atari paid 20 to 25 million dollars for those rights, which was huge for the time. When Atari CEO Ray Kasser was asked by Ross at the time what he thought about making an E.T.-based video game, Kasser said, I think it's a dumb idea. We've never really made an action game out of a movie. After negotiations were finished, they went to Howard Scott Warshaw on July 27th to commission him as the developer of the game. Warshaw was told that he was specifically asked to make the game by Spielberg himself and would be given a September 1st deadline to make so that they could get the game out for the Christmas holiday. Two games that Warshaw had under his belt, very impressive, Raiders of the Lost Ark, hence the Spielberg tie-in, and a little game called Yar's Revenge, which was just all sorts of awesome. 
he accepted the offer to make the game and thought it would be a really interesting opportunity to develop a game based on a movie he loved. Spielberg listened to the ideas they had to have this world where you would go around making the phone and thought, no, you don't need to do that. Let's just make a game that's similar to Pac-Man, where E.T., I guess, is going around eating Reese's Pieces in a maze. For some reason, they decided, nah, we're going to try the adventure game approach and started working on it. And they made their deadline. For Atari fans, anticipation was very high. And in 1982, it was the most sought-after Christmas gift. E.T., the video game, met with initial commercial success. It was among the top four on Billboard's top 15 video game sales list for December of 1982 and January of 1983. And the game would eventually go on to sell 1.5 million units, becoming one of the best-selling Atari 2600 titles ever. However, they made a whole lot more of those. They made 2.5 to 3.5 million other cartridges that would never be sold. And even though the game was a bestseller during the holiday season, it didn't meet the expectations that retailers had hoped for. And the price of the game quickly tumbled. The game would eventually drop in price from $49.95 to less than a dollar over the course of just a few months. According to sources, the ET game earned $25 million for Atari in sales but netted a loss of $100 million. Now what to do with all those extra games? There's this great story that was reported in September of 1983 in the Alamogordo Daily News of Alamogordo, New Mexico. They said that between 10 and 20 semi-trailers full of Atari boxes, cartridges, and systems from an Atari warehouse in El Paso were crushed and buried at a landfill in the city. This has triggered great urban legends that say that there are caves throughout the southwest filled with Atari treasures just waiting to be claimed. I don't know if it's true. Certainly they had to destroy some of these games somehow, but I think the urban legend is much more interesting than probably the reality of it. Probably some Atari things were dumped there, but there's still a whole lot of E.T. games up on eBay, and you could pick them up pretty cheap, so I don't know if they disposed of quite enough of them. There's something here. Something wonderful. E.T. glasses have come to your hometown. E.T. glasses showing four unforgettable moments with E.T. And where can you find them? Pizza Hut. Just order a medium or large Pizza Hut pan pizza and get two 16-ounce E.T. glasses for 99 cents. Collect all four E.T. glasses only at Pizza Hut. It's here, the E.T. board game. Now you can pretend to help E.T. go home. Danger! Sometimes you can hide. You're safe, E.T. And sometimes you can fly. Now the communicator's ready. E.T. phone home. Up to the spaceship. The one that helps E.T. the most wins. Also sold separately, the E.T. card game. E.T. board game from Parker Brothers. Some assembly required. So E.T., huge hit, huge money. That usually means sequel. And for E.T., it almost did mean sequel. In July of 82, during the film's theatrical run, Spielberg and Matheson wrote a treatment for the sequel to E.T. called E.T. 2, Nocturnal Fears. In it, Elliot and his friends would be kidnapped by evil aliens and would contact E.T. for help. Happily, Spielberg decided not to make this sequel. But I would really love to read a completed version of that. E.T. marketing and licensing was all over the place. There were commercials, obviously the Reese's Pieces, but it crept out into literature. There were several books about E.T., most notably 
a book that I really love called Letters to E.T., which features people writing letters to the character of E.T., which I think is just adorable. One of my favorite involves a senior citizen who couldn't see the film and wanted a refund so that she could see it again. It's just wonderful. There was a follow-up book written that was published in 1985 called E.T., The Book of the Green Planet, and concerns E.T.'s return to his planet of Brodo Asogi. There it is demoted and exiled to its childhood farm. E.T. eventually tries to return to Earth by breaking all the laws of his planet. It gives us a really interesting view of E.T. society, which isn't all that great, but at the same time it's kind of sad because we get to see Elliot moving on in life and starting to become a man and his memories of E.T. starting to disappear. Sort of that Winnie the Pooh thing happening there, where E.T. is no longer needed by the aging Elliot. In 1982, Neil Diamond released a song called Heartlight, which reached number five on the Billboard Hot 100. The song was inspired by E.T.'s Heartlight in his chest. The E.T. Adventure is a theme park ride that debuted at Universal Studios in Florida and cost $40 million to make, and is just magical to be on. In 1998, E.T. would be licensed to appear in public service announcements by the Progressive Corporation. The announcements feature E.T.'s voice reminding drivers to buckle up and traffic signs depicting a stylized E.T., which are adorable and I wish they had showed up on my roads, wearing a safety belt, were installed on selected roads all around the U.S. In 1999, British Telecom launched the Stay in Touch campaign with E.T. as the star of various advertisements. The campaign slogan was B.T. has E.T., E.T. meaning the extraterrestrial and extra technology. Finally, George Lucas, in 99, pulls E.T. into his brand new trilogy as a background creature in the Galactic Senate in Episode 1, The Phantom Menace. In anticipation for recording this show, I watched E.T. again last week, and I have to say it's still wonderful. Stands up very well. And if you haven't watched the film in a while, I suggest you go pick it up. And if you know some kids out there who haven't seen it yet, make sure they get to see it, because they'll love it. And if they pack a backpack and start sitting in the yard, don't think of them as weird. Just make them a sandwich and maybe put some Reese's Pieces on the side. Why do we all want to be up there? Thanks for listening to the show. For more retro fun, drop by the website at www.retroist.com. You can follow me on Facebook and Twitter. I'm at facebook.com slash retroist and twitter.com slash retroist. If you like the art you see every week here on The Retroist, it's done by Christopher Tupa. You can find more of Christopher Tupa's work, including original artwork for sale, at ctupa.com. That's c-t-u-p-a dot com. Thanks for listening to the show, and I hope you have a great weekend. Of who knows what away up there. Now that I think of it, why do we want to be up there? Because we're people, members of the human race. We thirst for knowledge, we, we want to know. And we do know that new frontiers and discoveries are waiting for new pioneers and scientists away up there. Outer space is the place where we'll trace the future. There's a lot of
Has been a retrospective production. Goodbye.